going to be reading Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion. And it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Amen. Thank you, Allie. Thanks, Allie. You guys can pray with me as we get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we, um, as we approach this text again this morning, um, it is our prayer that uh, you, would, you would soften our hearts to your word, that uh, you would <clears throat> enlighten us uh, to what it means to forgive and to love and to uh, demonstrate compassion in our time. We pray, God, that as we reflect upon the weaknesses in our own hearts, uh, the struggles that we each individually face. We pray, God, that you would reveal to us those weaknesses and that you would both challenge and cure us so that you would be honored and glorified in our very lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we, um, we opened up this, this discussion on you know, trying to address or trying to to speak to some of the, the challenges we've been facing as, as a society. I, th I think the, and thinking through this throughout the week and, and recalling, you know, some of the, the, the points that were made, you know, it's, a, it's also important that we, we think about, you know, just the, the, the discourse in our, in our world today, particularly in, in, this, in this place where we live, we're more familiar, we're most familiar with our immediate context, our own society, our own our own politic and the various ideologies that kind of bandy about in our own culture. So with that in mind, you know, as we look at these passages, as we look at these scriptures, the goal is, to, is, is for us to be able to speak to, to answer, to provide a reason for the hope that is in us with meekness and, and, and fear of God. We approach all these things with the understanding that, that God has an answer. God has a response. God has a, a way that we're, we're to live in this context. And we've been walking through Ephesians chapter 4, and of course, as a church, we've been going through the whole chapter of Ephesians, and the goal was to use this text to try to, to, try to shed some light on this topic of racism and justice. Just again, even some of the political discourse that we, we find ourselves in as we, you know, battle between parties and ideologies. But as we continue today, I, I want to try to focus on not just these incompatibilities that exist between the, the cross, the message of the cross, and ideologies and cultural norms that exist among us. But I also want to highlight some ways that we as a people of God can be different, how we can be agents of change in our, in our culture. 
the, the thinking here is, as I stated previously, is that there is a message of the cross. When we think of the cross, maybe many different things come to mind. Some of us may think of a, of a gold chain, you know, that simple. Others of us may think of some of the deep theological ramifications of God exercising forgiveness and demonstrating forgiveness on the world through this propitiatory death of his son that carries on throughout eternity, right? That's a deep reality of the cross. And so this message of the cross in and of itself serves a purpose. And it's critical that we as believers have the message as the foremost declaration for everything we do, whatever context we're in. And in that, you know, as we have that declaration, we, do, we, we proclaim it with this sense that everyone in the world who hears this message is afforded the opportunity to know God, to have a personal relationship with him. This week I had a chance to read through a, a book by a pastor named Miles McPherson. He's a, an African-American, he's a, a mixed race. He pastors a church of thousands of people down in, in San Diego. It's, uh, he calls it the Skittles Church because they have a great mix of people uh, in their church. And so he sat down and wrote this book to try to address some of the things that were going on in his, in his community, uh, but also just at large. It, it's a book called The Third Option. The premise of it is that the followers of Jesus, we don't need to fall into this trap of, of, of us versus them as we approach this, the discussion of racism in our culture. Th that approach really motivates a lot of groups that we find. It's kind of like a this is our camp, this is your camp. You know, which camp are you in? He uses the account of Joshua in Joshua chapter five. If you recall that, this is the time when, as Joshua's carrying out this campaign to take the Israelites into the, the promised land, he's approaching all these nations that would, that would oppose them. And as he's approaching these nations, this is in chapter five, verses, verses 13 and 14. As he's approaching this, this new land, he, gets, he encounters this, this soldier that looked a lot different than some other soldiers that he had encountered. And he asked his soldier, he's like, hey, are you for us or are you for our enemies? You know, so Joshua puts up this, this kind of dichotomy, right? You're either with us or you're with them. And, and the angel or the soldier of the Lord, we find out later he's an angel of the Lord. He says to, to Joshua, oh, neither one. He says to him that, I'm not here for you. I'm not here for them. I'm here representing the Lord. It was what the Lord would have us remember now, I believe. That there is this third option where we, where we focus not on our perceived needs and exceptions and not the offenses that others have laid upon or before us, but upon worship of God, falling upon our face as Joshua did, asking the Lord, what does the Lord say to his servant? That was Joshua's words. When he realized that he was standing before God and that God was, had, had his own agenda and whether that agenda would be fulfilled by Joshua was, based, was going to be determined by Joshua's level of obedience. But Joshua saw that, that, that soldier, he's, he heard those words and he fell on his face and worshiped God. And he asked God, he asked his soldier, what does the Lord have for your servant? And that's what, that's what we're, that's how we're approaching this. What is, what, God, what does your word say? What does your word have for us in this moment? The, the difficulty on teaching is on a topic such as racial bias and, and cultural injustices 
is that there's a risk of jumping on one extreme or the other. On the one hand, we don't want to treat racism as some special sin or, or sickness that sits in some exalted shelf of curses. Racism is a symptom of a bigger problem. We talked about that last week, Jeremiah 17, 9. What does it say? The heart is deceitful above all things, deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? On the other hand, one doesn't want to treat racism like every other sin, implying that dealing with it doesn't require special consideration. A person who struggles with greed and covetousness needs to be counseled into how to tackle and fight against greed and covetousness. And there are specific things that need to be, to be spoken of. A person who struggles with, with sexual sin, sexual addiction, uh, who, who are gripped by the tentacles of that evil, they need special guidance, special instruction. And so this is what we're trying to do now, is we're trying to, to again, walk that tightrope of not ignoring this problem. You know, if we, if we don't acknowledge the unique manifestations of racism and injustice um, and how we can combat them, we run the risk of doing what the church has done, unfortunately, in some capacities for so many centuries. You know, Sunday morning, as we said last week, is deemed the most segregated day or segregated hour in America. Because what happens is we have a tendency to, to kind of flock toward and to be around people that look like us and have jobs like us, have families like us, that talk like us. And as a result of that, we, we end up being in these, these communities and these um, environments where we can't, we don't have an opportunity to speak life into people that aren't like us, that don't, that don't eat the food we eat, right, or operate in the way we do. You know, it's, in this context, it's easy to say that's, it's easy to say that this issue is not my problem. It's their problem. And they have to deal with it. When they finish dealing with it, then we'll be a happy society. That, that's, a, that's a problem. We don't want to fall into to that trap. Joshua was, was instructed by the angel to remove the shoes from his feet because the land where he stood didn't, didn't belong to Israel nor to those that Israel sought to overtake, but it belonged to God. I believe that the matter we're dealing with now in this message in our society is not one that belongs to a particular group. It doesn't belong to a particular party, but it's something we must bring before God so that he can show us how to properly address it. So we're going to walk through the rest of these points uh, that we didn't catch last week, really just trying to look at, again, where is the problem and how do we deal with it as a church? The next point was in chapter uh, 4, verse 28, where, where Paul says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. On July 4th, 1776, you guys remember that day? Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The United States Second Continental Congress, it presented a document which declared the, the very reasons that they, that they were at war with the British for independence. The opening words of that document said this, we hold these truths to be, you know it, self-evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain, what's that word? Unalienable rights. That among these are what? What are they? Life, liberty, and the pursuit 
of happiness. As flawed as these men may have been, the hand of God had left a very important imprint upon their hearts. It led them to make this sovereign declaration that God has given each and every one of us, no matter our background, our skin color, our nation of origin, something that cannot be taken away. It cannot be stolen from us, even though many may try. Life, okay, everyone here, all of us are breathing. Nobody's dropped over yet. Right? I don't see anybody dead yet. All of us are given life. Whether we live one year or a hundred years, we're all given life. God gives us that. Our creator, God, gives us that. Liberty, freedom, not always self-evident, but it's a right from God nonetheless. That, that we are, are born What's that word? How's that song? Or that, that uh, book, Born Free. A book about a lion, a tiger or something. And then the last one, The Pursuit of Happiness. This may be a little bit more elusive, more, a little more difficult to, to capture and, and because it's very subjective. You know, what is happiness? You, know, you could argue that happiness is contentment. In other words, the idea that we should be free to live in such a way. We have the right to be free to live in such a way that I can pursue contentment for myself for my family, for the people around me, that I, that I am been, have been given a right by God to be able to be on this earth and have a life where, where I am free from the oppression and the discontent and the hostility of those, those who want to take that away from me. Now, this doesn't imply that we should live such a, in such a way that we, we do whatever we please, even if it violates a written or, or natural law, that would be a perversion of the right. But what it does imply, it affirms that what God has given me and God has given us, no man has the right to take away. Whether it's literally stealing men and women, kidnapping them, that's the word man-stealing, as that we, we saw in that four century long from 1500 to, to 1900 where, where people were being taken from, in, from the shores of Ghana, stolen from their homes, stolen from their families, shipped off to the Caribbean and to the Americas to, to, to tend fields. You know, human trafficking, the attempting to strip liberty and life or the pursuit of happiness, robbing someone of their dignity through insult and neglect or targeted abuse, we as followers of Christ cannot condone these acts. We can't condone the, the, the notion or the idea that someone is, is less than valid in society. We saw on August 11th of 2017, these people walking through the streets in this Unite the Right rally saying that Jews will not replace us, blacks will not replace us saying that these people are less than us. And as a result, we must take away from them the dignity that's afforded to them by God. And unfortunately, there are people in those, in those alt-right movements that, are, that, that walk into churches and, and praise God every day. There is no way, I don't know, I mean, I think it goes without saying for most of us, there's no way we could, we could condone something like that. And not only can we not condone something like that, 
we should be the most vocal in speaking against those who, who carry the banner of Christ who do condone it. So what is, what is the church left to do to counteract this? This is the, the, the response. Well, one, for, for those of us who struggle with our own identity, our own sense of worth, our own sense of value, either because of how we look or how where we were born or how we grew up, say in your heart, God loves me. He, he created me to be loved by him. He knows me and he desires good things for my life. That's, that's the first thing we have to do to be able to deal with these things is to recognize that, that God wants us and he wants to know us. He wants to be in relationship with us because if we haven't experienced that healing first, then we can't, we can't, we both can't speak into another person's need for healing nor can we know how to, how to even understand or comprehend the level of hurt that's been caused that needs to be healed. The second point is that for those of us who struggle giving grace to other people, there's, there's those of us who say that we don't want to give grace. We don't want to show compassion. Maybe because someone was born a different way or they're a different color or, or, or have a different upbringing or grew up in a different family than we did. Ask yourself, challenge, ask God to challenge you into how you can be a blessing to those people that you, McPherson talks about in, group and, in groups and out groups. Uh, he, he phrases this idea that there are people who are in our in groups, and, and when they're in our in groups, everything that we believe about ourselves, we apply to them. Everything that we praise about ourselves, we easily apply to these people that are in our in groups, and those people can be people that are again, of our same race or background or whatever it might be. And he talks about these outgroups. You know, people end up in outgroups for different reasons. Maybe because we were trained a certain way or whatever. And we, we essentially say the very opposite about the folks in the outgroup that we say about the folks in the in-group. So in this, in this way, as a church, we should be asking God, who's in my outgroup? Who are the people that I have relegated to being, being other than me, other than deserving of the things that I deserve. And, and ask God to challenge you on, on coming alongside those people. We'll hear more about that in a moment. And then the last thing, and the third thing in this area of us, our response is for, for all of us as a church, let's seek God to know how we can unite around this, this very message, that he loves those whom he has made. Let us not neglect the, the, the call to get involved in the lives of others, those who don't know, those who don't really understand, so that we can collectively be a light. God has said of the church, again, we're not that building. We don't need that building to be the church. God has said of the church that we are to be a light to the world. And, and in being that light, we're, we're, we're not only revealing darkness, but we're revealing who God is so that these, so that people like us who, who are fallen just like us can come to know that forgiveness. And so let us not be, be thieves of dignity, thieves of, of, of hope, thieves of, of the liberty that God has granted all men on this earth. Truths that, again, are, are, are unalienable or inalienable, can't be taken away, right? The next point in verse 28 Part B, he says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, being honest, 
doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Jeremiah 22, 3 says this, Thus says the Lord, Do justice and righteousness, and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed, and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien. That word can be translated in the 2020 vernacular. The immigrant, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. The message of the cross is incompatible with any movement or ideology which purposes to systematically oppress immigrants, the poor, the weak, orphans, widows. The notion that Christ would be attached to any operation that shuts out a people because they don't look or act like us is contrary to the cross. The church, more than any entity on earth, should be the one most vocal in championing this message. Ephesians chapter 2. We read this already in, in past studies. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 16. This is Paul telling the church, the, the Gentiles, the, the non-Israelites, where they were and where they are now. He says this in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We were immigrants. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. It says there, Paul says, God has in Christ taken down the wall of hostility. He didn't, he didn't build it. You know, Christ didn't come and say, okay, let's, let's build a wall of hostility between the people that know God and, and have his promises and those who don't have his promises. The, the chosen people and the unchosen people. Jesus didn't come and say, I, we will raise this cross in order to, to, to make a wall. By abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself, how many new people? One new man in place of the two, so making peace, for 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Right? The message of the cross, again, is a message that says that, that hostility is incompatible. These principles are so apparent, so crystal clear that one wonders how can any so-called believer hold in his heart or proclaim with his mouth that it is right to show hostility to someone because we don't believe they belong next door to us, that they shouldn't be going to the same schools that our kids go to, That's, that, that speaking their language in the booth beside mine is wrong. 
most of us sit here and say, of course, that thinking is wrong. Yet we allow these sentiments to go unchecked as they're uttered from the mouths of those with whom we align ourselves, either in family, political ideology, or other lines. There is no greater expression of having need than for someone to come to our door, the door of our home or our border of our nation, asking for help. For those that have been oppressed, feeling violence, fleeing violence, desiring hope to be turned away by those who otherwise claim to belong to Jesus is a heresy beyond words. Matthew 25, Jesus addresses this. Matthew 25, verse 41. Matthew 25, verse 41. Remember, Jesus talks about separating the, the wheat and the chaff. Verse 41, he says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me in. I was naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer him, Lord, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick and in prison and did not minister to you? Then Jesus, he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The cross is not compatible with the practice of turning away those in need. Does this mean that a country cannot uh, protect its borders and, and have laws that regulate entry? Of course, it doesn't mean we, we can't do that. But what it, do, what, it, what, it, what it does not say is that we can exercise those regulations with injustice and without mercy. We as a church should be proclaiming that. And here's some responses. Number one, um, this is how we as a church can respond. We can ask God whether we are harboring in, our, in ourselves, personally, resentment or hatred toward another because they seek refuge in this nation. If so, ask the Lord to, to lead you to repentance. The second thing is, is take a moment to read or listen to at least, I'm going to say at least 10 stories of, pe of people that have immigrated to this country. Understand their heart. Understand what they've, what they've been challenged with. Uh, people that have been seeking asylum as refugees or, or simply desirous of a better life for their families. And discovering these stories. You can, I, I was online looking for stories yesterday. There was countless stories of people who, who, who come to this country seeking a better life, whether from, from the 1900s or the 1800s to you know, 2020. There's countless stories. And reading those stories, you, you, will, you will not be able to walk away from them with, with anger. If, if the Lord is in your heart, you cannot walk away from them with, with hostility in your heart. And, and thirdly, as a church, collectively, let us come alongside other congregations which serve immigrants so that we can learn of their difficulties as they minister to these folks on a regular basis. I mean, we, I mean migrant worker, farmer work, farm workers, uh, there, there are definitely churches in our community that are challenged with some of these issues and, and, and dealing with different um, problems each and every day. As a church, we should come alongside them, and we will come alongside them and, and find ways that we can be the assist of assistance. The next point, to kind of get to the end here, is back over chapter 4, verses 2. This is these three verses here, 29 to 31. 
Look again, it says in verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. The cross is incompatible with any movement, any ideology that produces or is designed to produce divisive, corrupting, and obscene speech. And that as a result of that obscene speech produces malice and hatred and violence in our culture. When it's determined that the only way to effectively promote a particular cause is to use speech which corrupts, tears down, degrades, or demeans those who, with whom we disagree, we've strayed away from the purpose of Christ. The Spirit is a people builder. The Spirit of God is a people builder. The Spirit of God is an encourager. The Spirit of God is an edifier. The Spirit of God is a giver of grace to those who desperately need it. Amen? But one might say, they're so depraved, so lost, they won't hear unless, or they won't understand unless you speak to them in strong, forceful, vulgar terms. This is a fallacy, a delusion rooted in deception. One which ignores the power of the Spirit of God to redeem and to restore the lost. How many of you were lost before you were saved? Well, praise God. How many of you in that moment of being, uh, in that time of being lost, needed the grace of God to speak into your darkness so that you might find the peace of God and the grace of God and the love of God to move on? Every single one of us. How much more should we who, are, who, who have come to know God who've come to receive Christ, demonstrate that same compassion, that same love, that same, same desire to see people reconciled with God by his grace. Paul is saying in verse 29, that derision, mockery, and neglect should not be in our profile. Remember the, the statement that, that Paul made in chapter 2 of Ephesians. Each and every one of us was lost. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Grace must be our mantle. You know, a mantle is something is like that. Think about that cloak that you pass on you know, to the next generation. Here's the cloak I've been wearing, this, this elegant cloak. It now belongs to you. Grace must be our mantle. This notion that we, we pass on from generation to, to generation. Mercy must be our banner. We talk about banners. We talk about, you know, I was on the beach. We were over on a, near the beach here, and we saw this, this plane. You know, of course, everybody's coming to Monterey this, this weekend. We saw this plane flying across the bay with a sign behind it. I didn't read it. It was just the idea that, wow, these people must really want people to know what they're saying. They hired a plane to drive a banner across the beach, right? This must be our banner. 
effectively the, the message that we that we attach to the back of a plane, the back of a bomber plane, whatever you want to call it, to the back of a plane and share throughout the entire world that the mercy of God has been provided to save us. And we all need it. In verse 30, he, he follows this command with you know, this statement about you know, what this, this tongue can do, the damage that the tongue can do um, by explaining the two byproducts that develop if we allow corrupting speech to persist. If we don't, if we don't check it in ourselves and check it in others, it, it will persist and it will accomplish two things. One, it will bring sorrow to God. It will, will grieve the Holy Spirit. The second one is that it will promote or encourage bitterness and wrath and malice. We've seen that even in our own time. Genesis chapter 5, Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 7, there's a scene. We all know about it. We all have heard of it. We may not fully comprehend it. But there's a scene where God says, I'm going to read it. Go to your, in your Bibles with me in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 7. I want you guys to see this in, 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 in print. Genesis 6, verses 5 to 7. We talk about God being grieved and sorrow, sorrowful. Verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the, of the land, man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made, made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. That's a really tough verse passage to read. It's tough because we know what the resulting impact of this sorrow of God became. It was a massive flood that took out all but one family. But it's also tough to read because we think of the grace of God today, and we know, and we, we even see in this in this chapter six um, passage, or actually it's over in chapter eight, that that God promised he wouldn't do that again. As long as the earth was around, he wouldn't do it again, right? But it's also, so, so when we think about that, it's hard to think about God doing that, this gracious loving God doing that. But it's also difficult to read because those of us who know God and who have a relationship with him, the last thing we want to do is, is bring grief to his heart. The last thing we should want to do is bring grief to his heart. And so we see this, this declaration where he says multiple times, he uses this word multiple times, he, he was grieved in his heart. He was sorry that he had made man. He was sorrowful over creation. Why? Because the intent of man's heart was evil all the time. Now, what is that? Have we, have, are, we, are we far from that today? Okay. Just before that passage, God says that his spirit would not abide with man forever. And why was that? It was because the thoughts of man, our thoughts, had become so corrupt, our words so abusive, so unlike God, that it wasn't possible for us con to continue in that way. This God of Genesis 6 is the same God of, you know, 
Monterey 2020. The only difference is that God made this Noahic covenant. Again, as I said before, where he promises he wouldn't do this type of destruction again. But the other, the other main significance, and you know what I want to say, but the other main difference is that we now have the blood of Christ, which has been shed for our sickness. And whether we, we claim or affirm in this, in, in this moment that that death of Christ, that blood of Christ, should be applied to me, whether we, whether we do that today or not, the grace and mercy of God continues for creation until such a time that God reestablishes his position, his, his physical position on this earth. As we prepare for that new heaven and new earth, what will the Lord say of us? Will, will we be labeled as people of bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander? Or will we be difference makers? People who make every effort to see the love of Christ dwell richly in the hearts of those who, for whom he died. Those who, who may not be in our in-group or those in our out-group. Those whom, whom God has made in his image. So how is the church going to counteract How is the church going to counteract this spirit of vulgarity, forcing, uh, corrupting language that, that causes sorrow to the heart of God? Well, first, we should, we should ask God, are the words of my mouth pleasing to your sight? Do they bring glory to your name and grace to the people for whom you died? That's the first question. All these things start with self-reflection, if you didn't catch that. Asking the Lord, where have I failed in this way? Where have I spoken in a way where I've been insensitive, callous, vulgar even, to those uh, around me? The second thing is, is ask someone around you. Have I offended you? Have I said things either in jest or in anger that were hurtful, ungracious, unloving, demeaning? If so, ask for that person's forgiveness. Pastor Miles talks about a, a situation where he, one of the things in his community is that he as a, as a very prominent church, he was regularly invited to be a part of these, um, these meetings between the police department and the community. Where there were a number of cases. There was one case where, where a Nigerian, I believe, guy was killed by a cop. And um, it was, it was a, one of these unarmed type situations. And so, you know, people in the community, leaders in the community were brought in to help be a part of that. And as, as Miles stood alongside the police department to try to bring, bring peace and reconciliation, there were people in his community that, that hated him. One guy walked up to him in the middle of all this and, and said, you know, pardon my French, he said, F the Rock Church, F Pastor Miles. Right in his face in that moment. It's a, a black guy because he was, he, he saw this pastor standing alongside these police officers. Like, how can you, how can you align yourself with them? And he walked away. A couple of months later, the same guy, after this pastor speaks, after he speaks on the on topic, um, dealing with a very difficult topic, the same guy who blurted those things out comes up to him, walks right up to him at the service. He shakes his hand. He apologizes. He says, I was wrong. My anger was, was so, so strong in that moment, seeing you stand with those cops and, and seeing you align yourself with them that I couldn't, I, I couldn't take it. 
And so I put that out there. And he asked for his forgiveness. This, this is, are we always going to be the most clean speaking people? No. Are we always going to be the most grace giving people? No. But when we, when we aren't giving grace, when we aren't being patient, when we aren't being careful in, in, our, in our tone and our, our demeanor, we should ask people when we've hurt them. And when we've hurt them, we should ask God to show us how we can, can find forgiveness. The, th the third thing we can do as a church is make it a point to encourage someone. The one thing we used to do here in the building is we had these little cards. It says, be encouraged. And someone would just grab a card and just write on that card a word of encouragement and slip it to someone just to say to them, hey, I'm standing alongside you. The Spirit of God is standing alongside you. I've seen what, what the work of God in your life. I've seen what you've been doing to serve him. I see the struggle you're facing. Be encouraged in this way. Be an encourager. Be an intentional encourager. Don't encourage, you know, when the opportunity presents itself. But, but be, a, be an encourager. And as a church, lastly, uh, let's, let's call out these things. Let us come together to affirm and proclaim that those who speak and act in, in anger and vulgarity, that they don't represent Christ. They don't represent the Lord. And this brings us to our last, it really kind of ties into this last point of, of how we are to respond and, and how we are to deal with these, these things in our culture. The last point Paul makes here in verse 32, he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Uh, I keep quoting the book because it's, it's, it's heavy. It was a very good book. It, I re highly recommend it because he covers so much ground. Again, the book is called The Third Option. It's a phenomenal book. Miles says in that book, many people confuse forgiveness with approval of an offensive, harmful act. Others have the false idea that forgiveness erases accountability. Neither, neither of these concepts captures the real nature of forgiveness. He goes on to say, forgiveness means that you no longer hold someone responsible for healing the pain of an offense toward you. You catch that? You no longer hold someone responsible for healing the pain that's been caused by an offense. Forgiveness is the desire to look past an offense and see a person acting in a way that's inconsistent with the character potential that God has placed in them. In other words, you look beyond the person, knowing that God has, has designed them, he's made them for great things, and it, it's just as Jesus did on the cross. What did Jesus say about those people that were crucifying him? Lord God, what does he say? He Forgive them for what? They know not what they do, right? This is, this is the heart here of God, that we're, we're not looking at the people who are, who are bringing the offense as, as people who understand the depravity that, they, that they're under. But we see them as people who, who, who God wants to save and cure, right? Forgiveness is embracing the reality that someone may have done something to you out of fear and not out of courage. The idea that some people hurt us, because they don't know how to respond to problems. They don't know how to deal with situations. They struggle with, with other issues that manifest themselves in hurt toward other people. Does that excuse them? No, it doesn't. 
But it does mean that we, as a people who understand how God works and understand how humanity works, we recognize that and we seek um, to pray for them. The last one he says is that forgiveness is an expression of the heart of God towards someone who hasn't earned it. It stems from an overflow of the realization that none of us deserves God's grace, mercy, or love. We talked about that earlier. Right? Forgiveness is saying, I am extending the grace that God has given me to you. What does the Lord's Prayer say? As the God, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Right? It's in the Lord's Prayer. As I said, I said last week, it's in the Ten Commandments. You know, we're called to forgive the trespasses of those who have trespassed against us in the same way that God has forgiven our trespasses. The message of the cross is that each one of us has been afforded the opportunity to be forgiven by God. The loving heart of Christ took upon himself our own sin so that we might escape the coming punishment of God. No message can, can stand with the cross that does not have this truth at its core. No message which assumes there is hope outside of, of Christ and there's hope in God outside of Christ for peace or reconciliation is aligned with, with the message of the gospel. That in mind, you know, how can we as a church be better reconciled? Again, it first starts with us individually. First thing we have to do to address this, or we can do to address this issue, is to be reconciled yourself. For we cannot understand or promote reconciliation if we have not come to know for ourselves the reconciliation that only God can give. It, it is perfect forgiveness based upon perfect grace. So the first thing we have to do, if we have never done it already, if we haven't done it already, is to seek reconciliation with God. And the way you do that is you, you say to the Lord, Lord, I have sinned. I have fallen short of the glory for which you have for me. Lord, forgive me because I know and I understand that your son has died for my sin. And that sin for which he has died, which has kept me from you, has been forgiven. And it is forgiven through eternity. And Lord God, I pray that you would give, apply to me the life of Christ so that I can live in the fullness that you have for me. That's where it starts. It starts with that declaration that we need in and of ourselves and for ourselves the reconciliation of God. The second place it goes is, is this. Don't internalize hurts. I know it's easy to say that maybe. You know, I, I have to remember that um, even myself. Don't internalize hurts that others have caused you. Ask God how you can resist the, this temptation of harboring resentment. If others have offended you, pray and, ask how, pray and ask God how he desires you to approach them. If it requires you taking other people along with you, do that. But the last thing we want to do is harbor resentment because when we harbor resentment, what naturally follows, follows is a desire for vengeance, a desire to reciprocate the pain, a desire to reciprocate the hurt and to, to bring upon this person who has harmed us worse or, or equal or worse harm that they've caused us. And so this ought not be us. This is not the church. We, sh we should not internalize hurts. We should bring them before God so that we can reconcile those folks who have offended us to ourselves. And the last thing here that we can do as a church is that we, we have to teach forgiveness. 
And what I mean by that is that it's, it's not just a job for, for me, uh, Pastor Nate, Cody, um, Andre, whomever else is leading in a particular study, Brian. We as believe all of us, if we've come to know Christ, if we know God, we have to be teachers of forgiveness. And if, if we who know God, who, who walk around and we, we, we're followers of Christ, we don't know how to teach forgiveness, we need to learn how to teach forgiveness. You know, I keep quoting the passage from Peter, who says, always have an answer for the hope that is in you with, with meekness and fear. And the idea that, that as believers, we should have an answer to this, this, this notion of, of reconciliation and forgiveness and grace in our, in our culture. And the, uh, I think that's the last one for, for ways we can respond. So here, I'm going to close with this. All these considerations being made, you know, this question still remains, how can the believer, the follower of Jesus, find and express the good that God desires to accomplish in our culture? This week, I was looking up different ways that different groups in our society are combating racial and social and these various injustices. And it's, 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 it's fascinating to see just different things that people are getting involved in, whether it's advocacy for minorities, whether it's getting involved in education, you know, to, for, to ensure equal education for folks, um, whether it's just advocating for people looking for jobs who are having trouble getting jobs because of the color of their skin or because of, of where they're from, right? Uh, there are a lot of things that, that folks are doing. And as a church, there's no reason we can't do the same. You know, we may not, we may not sign up and, be, and become card-carrying members of the NAACP, but there are things that the NAACP is doing that we as a church can do ourselves. You know, there's, there's no monopoly, just like there's a, a thousand different companies selling laundry detergent, there could be a thousand different groups ensuring that people are treated equally in society, right? So the first thing though that we must do, and, and they all begin with P, so this will help. One is that we have to proclaim the cross. This, this was at the beginning of the message, it's at the end of the message, that everything we do, everything we say, all that we're about should be the cross. Without the cross, without the cross of Christ, none of this stuff matters. I said last week, uh, Andre and I were walking alongside some folks in, in one of the BLM uh, marches through Seaside, and we were just kind of being, walking with them. We got to our desti the, the destination over at the, court, the courthouse in Seaside, and the... Um, the mayor of Seaside began to speak. And somebody from the crowd tried to say something about burning stuff down, and, and he shut that down pretty quickly. And, uh, and then somebody from the crowd yelled out. He said, he said, what do we do if all that, that we, what, what happens if, if, if all that we've done and all that we've said, this continues and this persists? And nobody had an answer. Because there really isn't an answer in, you know, world systems, right? The, the fact is, we know that this will persist. This is not going to end. You know, this is it, it, until Christ returns and God reestablishes his throne on earth, this will continue. Satan will have his foothold on humanity. We, we wrestle against principalities in the air, right? So the question is, as it persists, Again, what is the message of the cross? And so that's the first thing, proclaim the cross. The second thing is more practical, uh, or somewhat more practical, protect the oppressed. 
This is the principle of being a keeper to someone. You guys have heard the, the story of, of, of uh, Cain and Abel. And, and, and Cain says to God, am I my brother's keeper? You know, God, by implication, says, yes, of course you're your brother's keeper. Right? Be a keeper. And what does it mean to be a keeper? You think of someone who's a, who's a tender of a garden. You know, people say that, you know, this person keeps a garden. That means that they nourish it. They, they watch things grow. They, they recognize when there's aphids eating away at certain plants and they, they, do, they spray things on them to keep those aphids away, right? There, there is, a, there is a, a, an act of nurturing those things that are growing. That should be us. That, that is what it means to protect people who are oppressed, is to, is to see where the hurts are and come alongside them and be their keeper. As leadership of, uh, here at FBC, we're seeking out opportunities where we as a church can come alongside other churches, those whose congregations don't look like ours, those whose pastors have struggles which we may not understand or may not know or may struggle or may not have experience with, uh, so that we can be a church who goes beyond our church. The last thing, and this is very critical, the first one was proclaim the cross, the second one was protect the oppressed, the last one is practice listening. Practice listening. To know how to address problems that exist in our society, we must first pull our heads up from the first world problems that seem to so enamor us and look to the problems, the real problems, of those around us who struggle. We need to actively listen to them. Listen to them. Listen to, to their cry for relief and, and their, their seeking of peace. But most importantly, we must be active listeners of God. Hear what the Lord is calling us to do. Hear where he's calling us to serve. What sacrifices he's calling us to make. Because he's calling us to sacrifices. He's calling us to hear. He's calling us to listen. But he's calling us also to act. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we, uh, we close this message, Lord, really desirous of of seeing where you want us to, to, to be, um, how you want us to, to live and be involved. Um, the, the struggles of our time go far beyond race. The struggles of our time go far beyond politics. We know God, as you've said, the struggles that we face are, are, are there because sin persists in the world. And until the problem of sin has been addressed, no problem has remedy. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to proclaim your son. But not only in words, but as, as your son said in Matthew 25, that we will proclaim him by providing clothing, by providing hope, by providing shelter, by providing a cup of water to those who are in desperate need of, need of it in our society. May the grace that you've allowed to abound in our lives be spread in this world that you've called us to serve. In Jesus' name.